Thank you, brother. That was wonderful. Well, as we do every week here at Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, we will be preaching from the scriptures. And so you can go ahead and take out your Bibles or your apps or whatever it is that you use to follow along. If you're a guest here this morning, again, I want to welcome you. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Shady Grove. And if that's you, if you're a guest here, we have Bibles in the seats in front of you, those blue paperback Bibles. You can take those out if you'd like to follow along. If you don't own a Bible, we'd invite you to take that home. That's our gift to you. And if the ones in front of you are looking lightly used, uh, we have some out in the lobby for you on a table that you can take home as well. And so we hope you'll do that. We're jumping back into our series on 1 Corinthians, and we've been kind of out of the series for the last two weeks, but in God's kind providence, the scriptures we've been studying the last two weeks actually kind of prime the pump for where we'll be in our text this morning. If you remember back two weeks ago, Charlie preached from Isaiah chapter 54, and there uh, one of the key verses was verse 2, where God commands his people to enlarge their tent. And the idea there was to prepare and expect that God is going to grow his people, that he's going to be bringing more people to know himself, and we should be expecting and preparing for that. And then last week, Emeka preached a great sermon from Luke chapter 5, and there we saw that Jesus calls his followers to not only follow him, but to become fishers of men. That is to go and, and meet and bring more people to Jesus. Well, here in our text this morning, what we're going to see is a very similar idea, and I think it's going to sort of drive this point home, that God has given his people a mission, and that mission is to build his church by making disciples. But the problem that we're going to see is that whenever the mission of God collides with the vision in the church— Utter disaster follows suit. And so let's go ahead and turn our attention to the reading of God's word. We'll be in chapter 3 today, but we're actually going to start by going back and reading a couple verses from chapter 1. And so please now give your ear to the reading of God's word. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Jumping ahead to chapter 3 now, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation as someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day that is the judgment day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the, on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, 
and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray together. Father, help us this morning to not think ourselves wise, but to realize that we are fools. And therefore, we must sit under your word and not over it, for we do not have the wisdom to judge it for ourselves. Give us this wisdom, Lord, we pray, as we seek to humble ourselves. Give us your grace and your mercy, and may your spirit lead us into all truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you are probably aware of what an internet meme is. Internet meme is an image or a video or or text that sort of spreads around the internet, particularly social media, sort of with fire very rapidly. Uh, Particularly, uh, it normally has some sort of funny undertone to it and uh, meant to make you laugh. One of the most popular variants of this meme is one called, You Had One Job. You had one job. And I think the best way to maybe illustrate what this looks like is just to show you a couple examples. So can we get the first picture? I don't know if any of y'all can see that. Um, you had one job, right? You had one job. Okay, let's get, the, let's get the next picture. You had one job. One, one job, man. Come on. All right, last one. It's my favorite. You had one job, and you messed it up. Well, in a less hilarious way, this is what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth this morning. You had one job to build the church, but now you're in such disarray that you have not only failed at this job, but you're in danger of bringing great harm to the thing the very thing that God is building. And so three things I want us to see in our text this morning. First, this job that was given to the people. Second, failed duties. And finally, the job that was accomplished. And so point one, looking at verses 10 to 15, the job that was given. Now, throughout the Bible, it is repeatedly emphasized that God's people have a mission in the world. And there's several different ways that the Bible uses to convey this mission. Enlarge your tent become fishers of men. We read from Genesis 1 and 12 where God commands Adam and Eve and Abraham to make more multiplying, you know, God-fearing image bearers that will bless all the peoples of the earth. God told the people in in exile in Babylon that they were to settle in, build houses, make lives, and to multiply the people of God. And Jesus summarizes all of these themes in Matthew 28, which we read earlier in our service. 
in what we call the Great Commission. There he tells his people in what we could consider the mission that is given to the church. He says that mission is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to obey and follow Christ. And so that means if you are in this room this morning and you count yourself a Christ follower, then you are someone who is on mission. You are on mission. A disciple is someone who learns to follow and imitate their master. And so a disciple is someone who is following Jesus and learning to obey this command to go and make more disciples. You can think of this mission that God is giving to his people that's slowly unfolding in the Bible. You can think of it sort of like a train slowly building up speed and momentum. So it's starting off slowly. And then by the time we reach Matthew 28, this command he gives to the people, we're at full speed ahead. God is at work in this world. He is redeeming the world. He is redeeming the fallen image of man. And he is bringing more and more people to himself. And this is the mission that Paul gave to the church in Corinth as well. When he says he laid a foundation for the church, whatever is meant by that, we can certainly bet that it included this authoritative command of Jesus to go and make disciples. And so Paul considered himself the skilled master builder that came to town and he laid this foundation. He delivered to them the gospel and all that they needed to learn to follow the teachings of Jesus. And now in his absence, he says, others are building upon it, upon this foundation. Not many of them are doing a good job. So who's he talking about here in this text? Is he merely referring to maybe teachers of the church? And pastors? Or are there broader implications here? While there may be kind of a special reference to teachers and pastors, if you jump down with me real quick to verse 16, what you'll see is that Paul is addressing the church as a whole. And so when he says that you are God's temple, the you here in the Greek is plural. And so you could maybe literally translate it and say, do you not know that you all together are God's temple, singular temple? You are not many temples, you are one temple. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Corinthians, you know later in chapter 6, there is this idea of where we are individually temples that bear the presence of the Spirit, but that's not what's in view here. What's in view here is the corporate body together as believers, all of the people in this room make up the one temple of God. And in verse 17, anyone can destroy God's temple, not just teachers. And that is because every member of the church participates in the building. There's no one on the bench. Every single Christian has a role to play in building the church. And this is why Paul is so clear in verse 10. He says, take care how you build on this foundation. The job that Christ has given to his church is no joke. There's no room for complacency, complacency here or indifference and so on, on, on an individual level, the caution is this. Take care of how you structure your life so that you can contribute to this mission. Take care of how you spend your money so that you're contributing to the mission. 
take care of who you spend your time with, that they don't make you complacent in, in accomplishing the mission. Take care of what you watch, what you read, what you consume. Be sure that it's fueling you for the mission. But the broader context of our text this morning is for the corporate church. And so there's considerations for the corporate level of the church as well. Take care of your church budget. That your budget priorities enable the making of disciples. Take care of what ministries and programs you create that they actually produce fruit and make disciples. Take care of your teaching, that it actually produces mature disciples. Take care of the goals and the vision that you have for the church, that it is in keeping step with the mission of God. Because what it comes down to for Paul is that there's two different ways to build the church. Sorry, there's two different ways we can build our lives either as individuals or as a church. We can either build things that last, things that are eternal, or we can build things that will perish and poof in an instant. They're burned up on the last day. That's what he's getting at here in verse 12. He lays out these different materials. He says anyone can build with gold, silver, precious stones. The idea here is eternal things. Things that will stand the test of time. Things that will last into eternity. Things that sort of match up with the mission to make disciples. Then there's things that will burn. Wood, hay, and straw. These materials are easily burned by fire. And make no mistake, this passage is a stern warning of judgment. Not necessarily a a judgment about losing salvation. That's not what's in view here. Look what he says. Uh, He says in uh, verse 15, he says, Some of you are going to have everything burned up. You'll still be saved, but only through fire. In other words, some of you are going to smell a little bit like a burnt chicken at the end of the day. See what I'm saying? Think of it like this. In many of our homes, at least I hope in many of our homes, we have a a safe, right? Some kind of safe hidden away. Keeps our important documents, maybe some money in case everything gets burnt up. Because we know that's going to last. If fire comes and destroys everything, that stuff is going to keep. Our salvation is like that. Our salvation is stored up in a lockbox. No one can steal it. No one can destroy it. No one can burn it up. But we have a responsibility to build around our salvation something that is worthy. Something that is worthy of the foundation. Something that is worthy of the gifts that we have been given. Something that will last into eternity. And so this text is a mirror for us this morning to take a look at ourselves individually and as a church community. What in our lives are we giving too much of our time or our energy or our love? What in our lives is distracting us from intentionally living out the mission, from building the church, this job that was given to us? I've been thinking about this a lot as a dad. Uh, Father's Day is a happy day. It's also a solemn day. Because I recognize, you know, I have this new responsibility Not only, you know, I have a responsibility to all of you as a shepherd and you all as a flock that's entrusted to my care, 
That's a responsibility I take seriously. So I have a, a responsibility to present all of you mature in Christ, and that's something I'm going to be judged for on the last day. Did I endeavor to make sure all of you are presented mature in Christ? I have a responsibility to my wife to make sure she is presented mature on the last day, and I have to answer for that. And now I have this new responsibility to my son to be a good father and to make sure that he is presented mature on the last day. As I've been thinking about this more, it's really been putting eternity into perspective for me. It's been causing me to think about my bad habits, how I spend my time, how much time I'm spending on my phone, the way I spend my money, the way I talk to my wife, what I'm eating to make sure I'm healthy and I'm here for my son for as long as possible. Because I know Felix is watching me and I have a responsibility to ensure to the best of my ability that he will be presented as a mature and godly man. But remember, this text, while it has a lot to say about us as individuals, it's written for the church body. It's written for the church body. And I think one of the marks of a healthy church that we can take away from this text is an honesty and a willingness to do constant checkups on ourselves. How are we doing? Are our ministries helping us grow in maturity? Are we seeing more unchurched people become disciples? Are we still achieving the goals that we have? What do we believe a mature disciple should look like in Montgomery County, Maryland, and are we working to get there? Are we meeting the mark? Take care, church, in what you build, Paul says, because nothing is more precious to God than his church. Nothing is more precious to God than his church. There are very real obstacles to beware of, and they can destroy the work that God has given to us. I guess we're going to point to failed duties. Here I'm looking at verses 16 and 17. If you're tracking with me here, God has given a mission to the church to grow deeper and to grow wider, to grow in maturity in our knowledge and our love for Jesus Christ, as well as to go and make more image-bearing disciples. That's the job. Paul is reminding them of that task here. You Corinthians had a job, and that job is to build the church. But here's the problem, like we said earlier. The mission of God is going full steam ahead into Corinth, and when it meets the the divisions that are present there, it's a colossal train wreck. Everything falls apart. Because remember the occasion for Paul's letter to the Corinthians. One of the things we've been saying about this letter is that Paul is writing this letter principally because of the problem of division in the church. And we read this in verses 10 and 11, if we can get that back on the screen. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you because it's been reported to me that there are, in fact, divisions that you're quarreling. And so this is the context of 1 Corinthians. The church was divided. And so all of the issues that Paul brings up in this letter are flowing out of these divisions. Divisions that produce an unhealthy and immoral church. So in light of the problem here in Corinth, we should, try to, we should be kind of reading our text between the lines this morning. You know what I mean by reading between the lines? 
Like, have you, have you ever used the line to someone, maybe in a dating relationship? It's not you, it's me. It's not you, it's me. What do we really mean by that? It's definitely you. <laughs> right? That's how you read that between the lines. Let's read our text between the lines this morning. These verses about a building that could be made either by precious materials or by things that will burn, what's Paul saying? What you've built is worthless, Corinthians. And it's going to burn. It's going to burn. You see, in our text this morning, Paul is confronting one of the worst consequences that comes from divisions a church that is no longer faithful to the mission. The mission was to build the church, make disciples, invest in ministry that produces fruit. In other words, he's saying to them, you had one job and you're failing at it because of what these divisions have done to you. So when Paul is describing two different ways to build the church, he's saying you're straw, you're hay, And the reason for this is because what you're doing is putting the church in serious danger. Look at verses 16 and 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Here's how to read that between the lines. Some of you are bringing great harm to the church. And if that's you, God's going to bring great harm to you. Because you don't mess with God's people. You don't mess with God's people. And you certainly don't stand in the way of God's mission in the world. Divisions and quarreling bring great harm to the church. And I don't have time to unpack examples of this, but many of you know who have been a part of church division, you know the great harm that it brings to the church and to God's people. But here, I think, is one of the greatest consequences of division in the church. Whenever we see division, whenever we see quarreling, What inevitably happens is we abandon the mission of God. That's the the premier consequence. We abandon the mission of God. We lose sight of the job that God has given to us to go and make disciples. And here's why. Rather than pouring our heart and soul into the work of multiplying disciples, we become consumed by defending our boundaries. Rather than seeking to enlarge our tent, we retreat and we put up fences that will keep people out who don't think, act, look like us, like we talked about a few weeks ago. This is what I mean. Whenever our theological distinctives, our traditions, our way of doing things, our preferences, whenever any of these things become more important to us than the mission of God, we cease being fishers of men and instead we just become keepers of our own little fish tanks. And while some of our actions have the capacity to destroy God's temple in an instant, such as the splitting of a church, much of the damage that we can inflict happens slowly over time, as it corrodes at the foundation like termites eating away at the foundation until one day, it's gone. And this morning, what I want us to recognize is that the marks of division in a church 
do not begin at outright physical separation from other believers. They don't begin with the public debates and the splitting of churches or any of that kind of stuff that maybe we see happening on the surface. It starts in here, in the heart. And it begins with a contentious spirit, with a stubborn demeanor, with cynicism, bitterness, envy, jealousy. It begins with an unwillingness to be a team player and support the mission of the church because we disagree with some of the ministry priorities. It begins with an unwillingness to volunteer where the needs of the church are because I don't like to do that. It begins with gossip about other believers or leaders in the church because gossip will always, always, always lead to factions. God is on the move. God is at work in this world. And we can either take up that call and participate in what God is doing, or we can be a great obstacle to that work and even destroy it. We can either take up the call or we can be an obstacle. I don't know about you, but I want to take up that call. I want to take up that call. I want God to use me and I want God to use our church to carry out this mission in Montgomery County and all across the world. What about you? Do you want to take up that call? Well, there's something very important that we can learn from the text this morning about accomplishing this job. It takes me to point three, the job accomplished, looking at verses 18 to 23. And this last point here is very fundamental to the Christian life. And that point is this. We must be humbled to the dust. We must be humbled to the dust. There's an ongoing posture of humility and repentance in the Christian life, not only toward God, but also toward each other. That is the secret to overcoming division and accomplishing the mission of God. You know, humility has long been a desired virtue and sort of a noble virtue in many societies. Even today, it's highly respected. We think about leaders. I mean, everybody wants to work for sort of the humble leader. And most business sort of gurus would say that humility is a key attribute of leadership. Jim Collins, he's a, uh, some of you may know that name. He's an author for, well-known for writing books like From Good to Great and Built to Last. He's arguably the most influential thinker on business success and growth. His book, From Good to Great, revolutionized the way many people think about growing an organization. And I'm sure most people who work in business are at least familiar with his work, if not having read it for yourself. And he's coined this concept of the level five leader, Someone who's exemplary and leading an organization. And do you know what the key difference is between a level four effective leader and the level five exemplary leader? That's right. Humility. That's the difference. Humility, he says, is the key characteristic of a leader who can take an organization from good 
to great. And here's how he describes a leader with humility. She is someone who demonstrates a compelling modesty, shunning public adoration, never boastful. She acts with quiet, calm determination, relying principally on inspired standards and visions rather than on personal charisma to motivate others. She channels ambition into an organization, not herself. She sets up successors for even more greatness in the next generation. She looks in the mirror, not out the window, to cast blame for poor results. She never blames others, external factors, or bad luck. I think many of us hear that and we say, yes, that's the kind of leader we want to work for because we all prize humility. One of the most prized humility, or one of the most prized characteristics we could have. And this value of humility, it goes way back. Most societies have, have upheld the value of humility. I mean, we see it in the Old Testament, and we see it in ancient philosophy. And so in this last section, Paul is coming back to this idea of wisdom and foolishness. This is something he's been unpacking throughout the letter so far. But now he's getting into the chokehold of his argument. Now, I know uh, a few weeks ago, I know a sermon about preaching wasn't the most exciting topic. I know that. Going into that sermon, I knew that it wasn't the most exciting topic. Nevertheless, the text demanded we have a sermon about preaching. But if you recall, one of the things we learned about Paul's preaching method, that what he does so often is he affirms and he challenges. He affirms the culture and then he challenges the culture. And that's actually what he's doing here because in these last few verses, he's interacting with two popular philosophers of his day. And what we see him doing and in interacting with these two popular philosophers and their view toward wisdom is he's, he's affirming sort of their, what they're thinking about, but then he's challenging them to go deeper. And so I'm going to put two quotes here back to back, and I think you're going to see the similarities between these quotes and our verses in the text this morning. And so look at verses 18 to 23 alongside of these two quotes. So the first one comes from Plato, who said this, This one of you, O human beings, is wisest who, like Socrates, recognizes that he is in truth of no account in respect to wisdom. You see how Paul is saying something very similar in verse 18. You must realize you're a fool if you want to be wise. And the next philosopher he's interacting with is Cicero, who said this, Then how dignified, how lofty, how consistent is the character of the wise man? Rightly will he be said to own all things, who alone knows how to use all things. And we're looking at verses 21 23 for that, and we'll get to that in a second. And so Paul is affirming sort of this philosophical view of wisdom, but he's also challenging it because he's saying you must go deeper. You must go deeper. If you want to be wise, you must first become a fool, but you must go deeper because in order to truly become wise, we must humble ourselves not only to this sort of abstract idea of wisdom, not only to the wisdom of others, but to the wisdom of God. For God catches the wise in their craftiness, and he knows all the thoughts of men, that they are futile. And in many ways, Paul is simply applying the teachings of Jesus to the pursuit of wisdom. Consider what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. It's that paradoxical way we live our lives in accordance with the gospel. Do you want to gain your life? You have to lose it. Do you want to be wise? You must be a fool. But, Paul says, while he affirms the pursuit of wisdom and the idea that sort of Plato says of you must become a fool to become wise, 
says you must go deeper because you won't truly be humbled until you see yourself before the face of God. The first thing we need to know about accomplishing the job that God has for us is we must be humbled and we must repent because God works with humble people. And the mission of God flourishes in a humble church. Unfortunately, this isn't always the case for many church families. Author Andrew Murray, who wrote sort of the book on Christian humility, he said it this way. It's on the screen behind me. Why is it that those who have joyfully given themselves up for Christ find it so hard to give themselves up for fellow Christians? It seems that the church has failed to teach its people the importance of humility. That it is the first of the virtues, the best of all the graces and powers of the Spirit. It has failed to show that a Christ-like humility is what is needed and is also in the realm of possibility. See, it's only after a display of humility and repentance that God will give us the wisdom needed to build his church. And not only wisdom, Paul says, but all things. And now he's setting our hearts and our minds on the horizon to all things that belong to us in Christ. And he does so first by affirming this part of Cicero's philosophy. Yes, the wise man does own all things because the wise man knows how to use all things. But guess what? Here's the magic little secret. You aren't the wise man. You aren't the wise man. You can never be the wise man. Because Christ is the wisdom of God. And he alone knows how to use all things. He alone owns all things. Because guess what? He made all things. Only when we measure wisdom with respect to God will we ever know what it means to be wise. And that will humble us to the dust will make us recognize how desperately we need his mercy and grace. Christ alone is the wise man, and yet he counted himself nothing so that we might have all things. Romans 8.32 says it this way. God, sorry, he, he being God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, not also with him, graciously give us all things? Let's say that again. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave up his son so that all things in Christ might be ours. All things. All things, Paul says. All things of the world, of life, of death, of the present, of the future, all things. All things are yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. All things are yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. All things are yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So why the pettiness? Why the envy? Why the jealousy? 
Why the quarreling? Why the bitterness? Why not being willing to get on board serving the church even if it's something you don't like to do? Why not? All things are yours. Will you take hold of all things to accomplish the mission that God has given to his church? And will you use them for the glory of God and the advancement of the mission in the world? In a moment, we're going to be coming forward to partake of the Lord's Supper. And we do this on the first and third Sunday of every month. This is a meal that is given to a people that are on mission. A mission from a great God who is at work in the world. And this table should have a humbling effect on us, for it is a reminder that we are not a wise people. We are not a wise people. We are not self-made. It is a reminder that we are so needy and so foolish that Christ needed to give his life for us. But he did so in love so that we might share in all things with him and so that we might commune with the Father in love. And so as we come forward together, may we be reminded of his great love for us and be fueled for the mission to which we have been called. If Jesus Christ is your confession, if he is your only hope in life and in death, and you are a baptized member in good standing of a Bible-preaching, Bible-believing church, we invite you to eat and drink. This table is for you. Join us at Christ's table. But if that's not you this morning, that's okay. This is a safe place wherever you are on your journey. But if that's not you, if Christ is not your hope in this life, then we'd ask you not to partake of the supper and just let the bread and the juice pass by you. And that's not because we're trying to be exclusive. That's not because we believe we're holier than thou. It's not because we think we're better than anybody. But it's because without Christ, this is just bread and juice. It doesn't mean anything for you. So we'd ask you instead to think on these things that you have heard this morning. To perhaps even pray and ask that this Christ will reveal himself to you. Consider this Christ who has died for the salvation of his people and take him today. And then come back. Let's talk about what it means to be a member of a church and to be baptized and to partake of the supper. If you have questions about what that, like, what that might look like for you, myself or Charlie or Porter or Emeka or Bruce, any of our elders, our deacons, or any of our church members would love to talk with you about what that looks like for your life. I'm going to close us in prayer, and then we're going to sing a song of response, and then we will be coming forward to the table. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is a reminder to us of the great purpose to which we have been called. There is no higher purpose in this life than to glorify you by joining you in the mission that you have given to your people. Lord, would you make us a humble church, a church that is known for loving each other, for resolving conflict in a healthy way, 
for dealing with divisions in a loving and healthy way before consequences bear on our community. And Lord, would you be so pleased as to use us in your mission here in Montgomery County and around the Lord, around the world. Lord, we long to build your church. And so help us to do that by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.